Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair. Tonight on Ideas, we revisit the 60s and a programme that won unprecedented popularity for public affairs television but nearly tore the CBC apart in the process. Nine, eight, seven. Ready one, six, ready three, five, ready two, and four, ready music. Three, two, one. One. Ready to roll. Music. Ready to cue one. Roll film. Cue one. This hour has seven days. I've had two indelible experiences in my life, World War II and seven days. And on the whole, World War II made more sense. Never before or since has a CBC program evoked such passions as this hour has seven days. When the CBC announced it would not renew the contracts of hosts Laurier Lapierre and Patrick Watson, irate demonstrators burnt CBC President Alphonse Wimet in effigy in front of CBC Vancouver. Citizens' committees to save seven days were formed throughout the country. A parliamentary committee was formed, and eventually the Prime Minister himself intervened to keep the show on the air. For seven days' creators, Patrick Watson and Douglas Leiterman, the issue was management interference. They felt they were being held back from doing what they felt the CBC must do, make public affairs television so compelling that everyone would watch. We found that we were shaping stuff that just it had us excited. We'd look at it and say, oh, my God, that plays. You know, let's see it again. I haven't got time. got to put it on the air in 20 minutes. Oh, yeah, but it's so great. They're, that's going to knock them out. We wanted to make television that just had people saying, oh, like that. Alphonse Wimet and the senior managers of the corporation saw the situation differently. To them, seven days was not just vulgar and bumptious. It was dangerous because its crusading zeal threatened the CBC's traditional political neutrality. And when management's attempt to bring the program into line failed, the issue became simply, who's in charge? Leiterman believed that the producer of a program has got co-equal authority over what goes on the air. He shares it with management. He does not report to management except on administrative things and so on. The content, he is responsible to the public directly. That was his view. We couldn't accept that. Ladies and gentlemen, this hour has seven days. Tonight's program is written and presented by David Cayley. The story begins in 1958. Television was still young and just finding its feet as a journalistic medium. Close Up, CBC Television's first national public affairs magazine, had just gone on the air. Among its staff were two young producers who would soon shake the talks and public affairs department to its roots, Patrick Watson and Douglas Leiterman. Working on Close Up, they got to know each other and soon discovered a common bond. Both believed that television could change the world. My notion was that there must be some way to translate journalistic skills into a visual medium which would have a lot more impact, and that really was what I was interested in. In fact, uh, I might spend a year writing major front-page stories out of Ottawa every day, and in that time I might do three pieces on CBC television. And I would go back to Vancouver and meet people who would say, gee, I saw you on television the other night, 
and I had wondered where you'd been for the last 10 years. Well, I'd been on the front page of their daily newspaper for the last 10 years with a byline in about 14-point type, but they had never, never noticed it. So for someone who was interested in exploring the possibilities of change in our society, here was a magnificent discovery that you could get people who were cab drivers, checkout clerks, to get involved in national political stories because of the merits of the visual medium, the sort of thing that they wouldn't read in a hundred years in a newspaper. The audience was there, but to get them involved would require a new technique. Not just radio with pictures, but a technique that recognized the strengths and the weaknesses of the new medium. And this is what Pat Watson had been thinking about. In the beginning, I had this almost evangelical notion about coming into television as a young intellectual, fresh out of graduate school, and thinking what a tremendous medium to spread enlightenment amongst the masses. And I can recall becoming terribly disillusioned within the first year, during which I was producing and directing a lot of panel shows, discussion shows, really interesting people getting together to discuss really interesting issues. You remember, it was the year of Suez, it was the year of of Hungary. It was an incredibly interesting time and I would uh, come out of the studio after ha putting one of these things live on the air just so stimulated with the discussion only to find out that nobody I talked to could remember anything that anybody had said. And it was particularly frustrating because if the program was very reasoned and people were being very careful and thoughtful and generous with each other in the discussion and intellectually very fascinating I found that nobody had watched at all, but if people were shouting and yelling at each other, then the people watched and told me that it was a great program and they really liked what's-his-name, you know, the one on the left, but they couldn't remember anything that was said, although perhaps they could remember that the subject was Suez or was it Hungary. So it, that led me to rethinking what the nature of the information was that we were purveying. And I think a lot of that thinking began to come into focus when I met Douglas Leiterman and he and I seemed to have infected each other with a real passion about the camera and about images and about the kind of thing that's conveyed through images. And I think it was probably Doug who first began to discern very clearly that the thing that worked on television was not ideas but was visceral feelings and experience and the things that the camera does convey and that the mind retains remarkably well. Watson and Leiterman's conversation continued for several years. Leiterman directed a number of celebrated documentaries. Watson produced a program called Inquiry out of Ottawa. Then their chance came in 1964. Reeves Hagen had become general supervisor of talks and public affairs the year before, and Hagen was a man who shared many of Watson and Leiterman's views on the question of broadening the CBC's audience. The CBC felt that it had its audience, quote-unquote, and that it programmed for its audience, which was a relatively small audience in national terms. It was sort of Don Mills talking to Don Mills. I think the you see the big change that Watson and Leiterman and I brought about was that we understood, which many of our colleagues and predecessors did not, that it is a dream to think that you can communicate with the public at large entirely in intellectual terms. In fact, we believed, and I think I still believe, that if you want to talk to the wider audience, namely everybody, uh, 
you have to, uh, first of all, attract their attention, which you can do by amusing them, delighting them, frightening them, irritating them. Now, if you're prepared to do that, then you can convey an awful lot to them in the way of uh, giving them a better understanding of, of what is actually happening and enabling them perhaps to make better informed judgments on uh, current affairs. Hagen's desire to unsettle the cozy faculty club atmosphere of the public affairs department accorded perfectly with Watson and Leiterman's aims. So when they presented their proposal for seven days, he quickly approved it. The show went on the air in October of 1964. This hour has seven days a show ranging over the complete spectrum of responsible journalism. Of such natural interest, such vitality and urgency, that it will recapture public excitement in public affairs television and become mandatory viewing for a large segment of the nation. This hour has seven days, probing dishonesty and hypocrisy, drawing attention to public wrongs, and encouraging remedial action. Presenting tough encounters with prominent guests hot in the news and prepared to be grilled. Excerpts from what Watson and Leiterman called their manifesto, broadcast as part of the opening show. It was pretentious in places, a little uneven in tone, but that first show contained many of seven days later trademarks, like the hot seat. The hot seat literally was an interview chair, isolated, nothing to hide one's legs, a rifle mic pointing at one's head like a shotgun, and light pouring down. This is Hugh Gauntlet, now head of television arts, music, and science. Then he was supervisor of special programs with particular responsibility for seven days. So that the guy in the hot seat, I mean, was literally in a hot seat. It was like being interviewed by the KGB. And then, of course, empty hot seats were exhibited when politicians declined invitations to come on. And the interview was turned into an act of technological aggression by the program. First into the hot seat was Justice Minister Guy Favreau. The subject was Hal Banks. The interviewers were Laurier Lapierre and Warner Troyer. Now, sir, when did you find out, as Minister of Justice, that Mr. Banks had fled the coup, had left the country? Uh, that he had left the country? Well, for sure. Yes. I have not found out yet, yet because I don't yet have a report, but... Uh, you say the evidence was available in February of 1959. Well, I know now because I've seen it. Okay. Mr. Fulton said just a couple of days ago in Kamloops, his former department's legal advisors had gone over the reports carefully and decided they did not have enough evidence to charge banks. Now, which of you is, is right? Well, uh, was there or was there not enough evidence to lay a charge in 1959? I can remember particularly the interview with the Justice Minister Guy Favreau over the Hal Banks affair. You know, Hal Banks was uh, a wanted man, and the government claimed they couldn't find him, and a newspaper reporter found him overnight. And so they challenged Favreau, you know, why couldn't the government find him if a reporter could find him? And uh, Favreau was having quite a time answering this uh, question, when the camera moved in on his face and then right up to his forehead and uh, did a close-up of the beads of sweat on his forehead, which told everything. Helen Karskallen, 
herself a former producer of such shows as Trans-Canada Matinee and Take 30. She became fascinated with Seven Days' success in reaching an audience the CBC had never talked to before. The little man, the guy on the street, the fellow who was always suspicious that uh, the big shot and the man with power was putting something over on him, he could identify with this, you see. Here was somebody on the hot seat. And, yeah, they, they were not completely honest. And they, uh, so in that sense, this program did address a much broader audience. They consciously set out to make a tabloid. And just like the Sun newspaper, they had their formula, and it included uh, girls with bosoms and jokes. And Lightman had the list up on his wall and said, every week we should have these five or six things buried amongst the titillation were the serious things they wanted to get across. Seven Days, with its activism and its iconoclasm, partly reflected its producers and their theories about television journalism. But it also reflected its era. Eric Koch is a former member of the Public Affairs Department who's just brought out a book called Inside Seven Days. He believes that in the end, Seven Days has to be understood as a local outcropping of the 60s. My view of Seven Days is that it came out of the times. It came out of the feeling younger people had about authority. And to embarrass people who only a few years ago were on pedestals, to whom one said, sir or madam, uh, whom one treated the way we are supposed to treat teachers at school or whatever, with respect, with good manners. They dispensed with the old-fashioned civilities. The times certainly were extraordinary. The Beatles came to Toronto, and Seven Days was there to record the mayhem. They were walking down the hall, and I told Jan, thank you for autographing my book. And then I just shook Ringo's arm, and then Paul came by, and I hit a grill psychedelic drugs were coming into widespread use among the young seven days produced a full-length documentary on LSD it's like um, dying and being reborn to take one little piece out of one of my experiences I could say I um, became the idea of a stained glass window. I entered a cavern of dripping jewels. In Canadian politics, it was a time of instability and scandal. Just imagine two executive assistants allegedly phoning up regarding a man named Rivard, a dealer connected with a wholesale narcotics ring. Why the interests of a parliamentary secretary to the prime minister in a matter such as this and in an individual such as this to get him bail? You're pretty indignant about this. I'm not indignant. I'm aroused that there could be a government that would permit the suggestion that the administration of justice shall be the plaything of those who would subvert it. And dominating international affairs was the Vietnam War. Seven Days showed a film by Beryl Fox called 
the mills of the gods. It included what must surely be one of the most remarkable documentary sequences ever filmed. Cameraman Eric Dershmead filmed from the co-pilot's seat of an American fighter bomber while the pilot gave a running commentary on the raid over the intercom. Real fine, real fine. That was an outstanding target, all right? We, uh, we bombed, first of all, and we could see the people running everywhere. It was fantastic. Uh, it's, it's very, very seldom that we see Victor Charlie run like that. When they do, we know we got him. If we can keep him on the runway, we know we're going to really hose him down. Bye, Joe. That's, uh, that's great fun. I really like to do that. The times were right for a program like Seven Days, but the program was also right for the times. After watching some old kinescopes recently, I decided that its secret was a remarkable imaginative energy, disciplined by ruthless editing. We trained ourselves to uh, notice points at which our attention wandered off and we'd be thinking about uh, the date for tonight or what we were going to have for lunch or anything other than, than what was right on the screen and make a note. So we developed this kind of house rule where if it couldn't hold the attention of the producers in the cutting room, it didn't go on the air, however relevant and important it might be in terms of the argument, using the word in the 18th century sense with a capital A. This method produced exciting but sometimes rather elliptical results. Watson didn't care, as long as people kept watching. We wanted to make television that just had people saying, huh, like that. And we would sacrifice a lot of stuff to do. And we made mistakes doing that. We left stuff out that, without which perhaps you couldn't understand the story. We said, well, finally it doesn't matter, because if we don't do it our way, they're not going to watch. And we got to have them watching. They can ask the questions later. This is really interesting, because the storytelling is very elliptical. Yes. That's one of the first oh, things I noticed. Is I, well, what, what what's going on here? Yeah, what's the story here? Yeah, that's right. One of the things that we had to work at with some of the new guys who came in in the second year was to train them now to lose their need to tell the whole story. What you have to do is almost deliberately leave gaps that will involve people in that kind of, you know, bringing the head forward reaction. The thing has to play with its visual coherence, and if there are lacunae in there, if there are these awful gaps that people stumble over, that's okay. They've got a lot of other media to turn to. The important thing was everybody was talking about it. And a lot of people were mad at it, but nobody was ignoring it, and that's what we wanted to do. We wanted people to be discussing the stuff they saw on the air. It took tremendous discipline, and the guy who held us to that discipline throughout the whole experience was Leiterman. Leiterman said, if you're satisfied with the piece, then it is not a good piece. We really tried to put on an hour of television where every minute of it would have energy and where the viewer sitting at home would at least once or twice in that hour say, my God, you know, how did they manage that? Or, you know, that's what I think. How come nobody's ever said it before? Or say to himself, boy, you know, they sure got that guy where it hurts. Or that's something I always wondered about. Or isn't it great that there are really people in the world like that person that I just saw on that program? The creation of heroes was an important part of Seven Days, and there were many of them. From the sewer cleaner who returned the $18,000 he found in the sewer, to the Indian agent who built his own bureaucracy to build houses for Yukon Indians, to Ralph Nader. Tonight, Ralph Nader charges the Detroit car companies with running risks that can't hurt them, but do hurt us. 
in a sense, you know, we created Ralph Nader. Now, I know that he'd published his book, Unsafe at Any Speed, but the American media were systematically suppressing him. None of the uh, uh, major magazines would give him a review. He was anathema to the broadcasters. Around Ralph Nader, Ken LaFoley and an extraordinary researcher named Carol Alexander Brown, a black man from Jamaica, put together the story about auto safety in North America. And they had lots of exciting laboratory footage of dummies being smashed up in cars. But what made that thing work was they had a hero. And the hero was the little guy's advocate right at the middle. And that was Ralph Nader. That was Ralph Nader's story. I happen to think creating that kind of mythology at that time and I'm not a Ralph Nader fan, was a very good thing to do for the population because it said to them, hey, there are some instruments here that you could use, you know, and a guy like this, a special kind of lobbyist, a crusader, if you like, is an instrument that you can use. It's wonderful television. It could not have worked in the way it did without our having, in a sense, discovered the potential of the myth of Ralph Nader. Seven days typified a new style of activist journalism. They were out to right public wrongs, as their manifesto had said. And the politicians didn't always like what they saw. Roy Fabish was then the program's Ottawa editor. Toronto would phone and say, you know, could we get cabinet ministers for interviews? And it was my job to try to persuade them to come into the studio and uh, do their trick. Uh, sometimes they were persuadable. Sometimes they told us to... Uh, I remember one minister... John Turner, I'd phoned him, and he said, fuck off. I am not, I'm quoting now, fuck off. I am not going to have anything to do with you, you and that program. He really meant the program. He had nothing for or against me. I mean, that, that wasn't untypical. And the cabinet minister, so I remember Maurice Sauvé telling me, and of course, if he hears this, he'll have a hemorrhage. But certainly after one seven days program, the law was laid down for ministers no longer to appear on seven days. Most of them obeyed that order. Not all of them did. Many of the politicians' reservations were shared by the senior Ottawa management of the CBC. Seven days was in trouble with them almost from the beginning. In fact, the show was only one week old when a storm blew up over the Queen. Anti-royal visit groups have begun to make known their opposition in force this evening in Quebec City. Earlier tonight at Laval University, students there spelled out to newsmen around the world their reasons for their opposition to the visit, saying that at this time, with moves underway to seek changes in the constitution of the country, the visit is at the least inopportune. The students at Laval are holding the their Queen was to visit on Quebec. the campus after the authorities. Captain Briggs came to Toronto to tell us that there was to be no coverage of the Queen's visit to Quebec. We said, how can we do that? Major event in the country, extremely controversial, much fear around it, Quebec separatists, bombs, it's all that kind of stuff. And he said, you are not going to cover it, and that's it. I won't hear any discussion. Well, you can imagine how that would, <laughs> that would resonate with a bunch of journalists. Captain Briggs, who issued this order, was then executive vice president of the corporation. His veto on coverage of demonstrations against the royal visit was not something the seven days producers felt they could accept. They observed the letter of his edict, but they clearly infringed the spirit. 
In Niagara Falls, Ontario, the members of Unity Lodge Number 379 of the Ladies' Orange Benevolent Association met with deep concern to adopt this resolution. That we, the members of this lodge, join in a moment of silent prayer each morning at 11 a.m. for the safety of our Queen and His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh, as they visit our land and until they have safely returned to their home and loved ones. I declare that motion carried. Tonight, the ladies of the Orange Lodge will feel a grateful sense of relief that Queen Elizabeth came through her bizarre adventure in Quebec City unharmed. The government and the RCMP will be congratulating themselves that my compatriots in that city, with a few noisy exceptions, behaved. But ladies and gentlemen, is that enough? Is it enough to say we got away with it? It seems certain that many Canadians this week, in the midst of admiring Her Majesty's courage and in the midst of uh, feeling relieved, wondered very deeply whether the crown can still realistically be a symbol of Canadian unity and whether their government had been wise in acceding to the wishes of the Quebec government who had asked that she be invited in the first place. Laurier Lapierre's expression of opinion was tactful, even generous in its praise of the Queen's courage, but it was still an expression of opinion, the first of many to come. These expressions of opinion raised alarming policy questions at CBC headquarters in Ottawa. Many of the corporation's senior managers believed that the CBC could only preserve its independence by maintaining a strict political neutrality. And now, says Eric Koch, they saw this threatened. There was always the assumption that, a kind of democratic assumption, that the CBC had to present all responsible points of view. You didn't have to give Adolf Hitler equal time, nor Joseph Stalin. But short of that, you had to give every, you had to at least pretend, go through great efforts, great efforts, to be balanced and fair. Well, it was quite clear that as soon as Seven Days was on the air, that that is not what they were going to do. If you do a program the way Leiderman conceived his, you want to be in the forefront of of reform movements, whether it's on Vietnam or on capital punishment or whatever. They thought that they were creating a better world and that, and that the CBC management was, was status quo, cowardly, standing, sitting on the fence, not interested in society. The conflict between Toronto and Ottawa had many facets. First, there was the character of headquarters itself, a brand-new office building set off all by itself on Bronson Avenue in Ottawa. Someone who works there now once told me that when he moved from regional management to headquarters, his staff gave him a wreath with a banner draped across it reading, Good luck in the afterlife. To Hugh Gauntlet, it was not the place to give you an appreciation of what was going on in Toronto. Ottawa at that time was an even more isolated artificial capital city than it is now. So remote from the world of New York and Hollywood remote from the beginning world of the coffee house and, and those developments which were just starting in Toronto in a very tentative way. So that 
it was a place in which one viewed what turned out to be a major cultural revolution as if it were taking place at the other end of a rather powerful telescope. When the public affairs supervisors went up to Ottawa to discuss, which at times, three or four times they did, with the Ottawa management, it was like envoys from a foreign power meeting in another government. Extraordinary atmosphere. This is Peter Campbell, then the supervisor of current affairs. The public affairs supervisors were conducted in through the basement of the Ottawa building so that nobody could really see them. And the, the two sides sat around the table and harangued each other uh, in a way that didn't, uh, there was no meeting at all. Reeves Hagen was uh, extraordinary in those years. He's like, a, he, he had the talents of a highly successful Irish courtroom barrister. And he would sort of harangue them all in a flamboyant fashion and overwhelming in many ways. And um, I would deliver rather haughty Ciceronian orations. <laughs> Sometimes with Latin quotations. <laughs> and uh, David Walker, who was an education specialist, of a high intellectual caliber. And so um, the Ottawa management uh, spoke a different kind of language, you know, rather practical old broadcasting from the radio days down to earth. We met, could have talked on intellectual terms with him, but he chose not to because uh, I think it, so far as his broadcasting standards were concerned, there was no question that his advisors were right, so he left it to, largely to them. On questions of broadcasting standards, Alphonse Wimet certainly did agree with his advisors, but this wasn't the only reason for his confidence in his lieutenants. Eric Koch argues that it also had to do with the very high value Wimet placed on loyalty, a value created in the radio days when the CBC was a much smaller, closer-knit organization. He was at the head of a church. We all had a feeling that of a kind of priesthood. The CBC, nobody now can understand this. But, and in, in, a, in a way that was broken by seven days, that was the watershed. Perhaps we should say television broke it, certainly in the rays of radio. We had a feeling of, uh, that we, we exercised spiritual power of a sort. I mean, I'm talking the arrogant nonsense, but there was a quality of that. Now, that meant that loyalty was tremendously important. It also meant you have to hire and recruit and promote from within. Now, someone who, had, who was less devoted to the CBC as an institution, as an almost sacred institution, would have said, well, if I haven't got the right person to be this pivotal figure, well, I will go to the Global Mail, I will go to the universities. But it would have been out of the question for Alphonse, for these few jobs, you know, the vice presidents, these key figures around him, they, are, they all had to be old-time CBCers, whether they were suitable or not. Now, in many ways, you would say that's very endearing. And it, so it is. But at the same time, it was catastrophic. Alphonse we met naturally, didn't see it this way. For him, the issue was simple. Seven Days was a good program overall, but some of its items were in bad taste, and others violated CBC policy. For example, the long-standing idea that program hosts should be reasonably neutral on controversial subjects. Wimet was particularly incensed with Laurier Lapierre's handling of the case of Stephen Truscott. Truscott had been in jail for seven years following his conviction at age 14 for the rape-murder of a 12-year-old classmate. 
a book had just come out raising serious questions about whether the boy was actually guilty. Seven Days interviewed the author and then Stephen Truscott's mother. Following the filmed interview with Mrs. Truscott, Laurier Lapierre turned to the camera and as he spoke in a choked, emotional voice, a tear ran slowly and conspicuously down his cheek. Wimet was outraged. He felt that Lapierre's emotionalism compromised the integrity of the CBC itself. And then there were the endless questions of taste. We start to get problems right at the beginning. We think they're going too far, too fast. The Canada in this is in a state of evolution in terms of what is acceptable. The traditional values are, of course, being replaced or destroyed. We know all this. But it's not happening at the same rate all over the country. A sketch or something on seven days can be quite acceptable to a certain audience and shock, literally shock the West. So we say, look, fellows, you're damn good. What, would you slow down a bit? They didn't like that. Right at the start, they fought, they tried to get around in every possible way to have their way. And they were making it tough, threatening. They say, well, if you don't approve this, uh, uh, we won't show the program tonight. You know, that kind of attitude. And with Reeves Hagen saying, you know, there, you have to pay a certain price if you want this kind of quality. Defending them, but we didn't know how far he was defending them. I happen to have, uh, personally, a very high regard for Alphonse we met. Reeves Hagen. A man of great integrity and I think with a sense of public purpose. And I understand and don't doubt it, a first-class electronic engineer. The trouble is that he was miscast. Let me tell you that um, I never saw a great deal of him, but one time he sent for me and we had a long talk in the course of which he said to me, uh, you know, Reeves, I have a very large and complex institution to run. And he said, I uh, find someone and I put him in charge of engineering. And I don't hear from him. He's there, he does his job. I find someone else, I put him in charge of industrial relations. And he does his job and I don't hear from him. He said, then I find you and I put you in charge of public affairs and I hear from you, well he meant from the network, all the time. And I said to him, I, this is fairly accurate what I'm telling you. I said to him, sir, if you don't understand what you just said to me, I don't think I'm going to be able to explain it. Relations between Seven Days and senior management were now running in a vicious circle. Neither could budge for fear of giving up a vital principle, and so the conflict began to feed on itself. You must realize that the time we were talking about, there was very little, if any, relationship of trust. What we felt was that we had to sort of guard the perimeter that if we gave way on one thing, then we'd have to give way on another and we'd finally find ourselves without defenses. That's part of the reason why I said earlier 
And at times I find myself defending people's right to do things I didn't think they ought to be doing. Mm -hmm. Because there was a sort of uh, siege mentality or armed camps or something. It's all very silly looking back on it, but that's the way it was. Hagen's justification for trying to thwart his own management was that he had a responsibility to the audience as well. Doug Leiterman took the same view. If we had backed down every time management got frightened, not only our own program, but the whole fabric of the current affairs uh, department of the CBC, which is probably the most important single voice, uh, if you like, for exploration and dissent in the society, would have been muted. And indeed that happened after Seven Days was demolished for nearly a decade. There was very little done which had any of the same daring or, or energy as had preceded it. They wanted to do it their way, according to their value, and the heck with those above them. I had long talk with Leiterman as well as Watson. Leiterman believed that the producer of a program has got co-equal authority. He shares it with management. He does not report to management except on administrative things and so on. The content, he is responsible to the public directly. We couldn't accept that. The differences were fundamental and irreconcilable. The question was not whether war would break out, but when. Pat Watson thinks it began with the very first show of Seven Days' second and last season. Good evening and welcome back to a new season of Seven Days. I'm Patrick Watson. And I'm Laurie Lapierre. And though it's a new year with new faces and new stories, our purposes are the same, to bring you the best television journalism that we know how to make. And ladies and gentlemen, it starts right here. We had determined that a neat thing to do would be to put a telephone on the desk. We did go live. And to say in our opening broadcast, all right, Mr. Diefenbaker, Mr. Pearson, Mr. Douglas, and Mr. Cowett, the four leaders, here's the phone. We would like you to come in the hot seat with Laurier and me. And we're open now. Why don't you call us? And we, told, we would tell the politicians in advance we were going to do that. Management said, no, you can't do that. It's intervening in the electoral process. We said, what's the difference between doing that and phoning them up and saying we'd like to come and have an interview? They said, but you're doing it in public. We said, but if we phoned them up and said we'd like an interview and they refused, we could publish that. You wouldn't stop that, would you? No. Well, then, uh. So they, the long and short of it was, after some argument in which they said, well, perhaps if it wasn't Laurier Lapierre and Patrick Watson, and we said you have no right to interfere with the casting of the program an absolute fiat came down, you shall not do this, and that fiat came down with about a week to go to airtime for the first program of the second season. We finally, with Reeves Hagen's support, went back to the management said, and said, if you insist on this, then you won't have a program. We'll all resign, that's it, no more seven days. At the last moment, they capitulated. We gathered for a victory celebration at which Reeves, who claims he doesn't remember saying this, but I remember it very vividly, said, don't be too pleased, boys. Just remember, they will have their pound of flesh. Six weeks later, the general manager of English Networks, Bud Walker, sent a memo to his immediate superior, Captain Briggs. We must seriously consider terminating this series within the next few weeks, he said. 
but Alphonse Wimet, the president, disagreed. He thought the program could still be saved. The result was what proved to be a disastrous compromise solution. Save the show, but get rid of the hosts. This decision was conveyed to Reeves Hagen, but Hagen, still hoping that it could be reversed, did not pass it on to seven days. Then, on April the 5th, Bud Walker flew to Toronto to talk to Patrick Watson, and it was this meeting that started the Seven Days War. The subject was Watson's future with the CBC. Walker and Wimette were considering transferring Watson to a new show called Quarterly Report to be jointly produced by the French and English networks. But the goings-on at Seven Days had shaken their faith in his loyalty, and they wanted to sound him out on this first. They assumed he already knew he was to be taken off seven days, and during the meeting, Walker referred to this decision as if it were already understood and accepted. Watson concealed his surprise, but after the meeting, he immediately called Leiterman, who was on holiday in Florida. They decided to go to war and began by leaking the story to the press. The CBC's controversial television program, This Hour Has Seven Days, will be back in the fall, but some changes in personalities are expected. A CBC statement says Patrick Watson is not expected to be returning to the show, and it's the corporation's hope he will play a major role in a significant new documentary production. In Toronto, Mr. Watson gave this account. Mr. Walker called me in last week and said that there would be no future association between me and the program this hour has seven days because he and the management had some doubts about my loyalty to them as management, my loyalty to the CBC, my loyalty to national broadcasting. In fact, they had some questions in their minds about my attitude toward my country. He did say that... Uh, the first, the first realisation that war has broken out is sitting in Reeves Hagen's office seeing the national news on which producers appeared attacking the management flat out. An incredible spectacle. I mean, we all turned white. <laughs> Hugh Gauntlet. And, of course, the contest was a ludicrous one. The head office uh, was staffed by people who were, uh, from the president down, um, were totally remote from the political process, uh, had no understanding of journalism, had no contacts. I don't think anybody at a head office had ever set foot in the Ottawa Press uh, Gallery. Seven Days was staffed by a bunch of uh, Neiman Fellows, graduates from the Toronto Daily Star, uh, who just worked the whole thing uh, as if they were playing rags on the piano. And uh, in that sense, it was no contest. A Save Seven Days committee was established with headquarters at the Four Seasons Hotel, right across the street from the main CBC buildings on Jarvis Street. Historian Bill Kilborn became the chairman, and a number of other prominent Canadians were rallied to the program's defence. Leiterman put one of his producers in charge of the lobbying campaign, and Seven Days staff took an active part in the organising. They organised a revolt. You'd call it a mutiny if it was on a ship. A mutiny which proved later on, uh, as people talk, to even include the possibility of the seven days people, Watson at least, taking over the management of the corporation. I mean, he was seriously considered for the presidency. I can't remember who put the idea to me or whether it came spontaneously, but 
we, we began to feel that the CBC at that point was in such a state of confusion that it needed leadership coming out of the program department. And I felt that I had quite a strong constituency on both the French and the English side at that time. I beat the bushes a little bit and tried it out quietly on a few folk and got quite a lot of support in the house for it. I then went and tried it out on some of the establishment folk around town here in Toronto, got some more support and some suggestions how to proceed. And then I went and began to lobby the ministers, whom I knew personally because I'd interviewed them or, you know, had put them on television one way or another over the years. I was saying conventionally for a few years afterwards, thank God they didn't appoint me. I now think it would have been wonderful. Watson's campaign for president was an open secret in Ottawa. Some CBC executives began to fear a coup d'etat. Seven Days was now immensely popular. The crisis had pushed its audience rating to over three million Canadians each week. The program had political support. Save Seven Days committees were springing up everywhere. Last night in Sault Ste. Marie, a band of about 50 people carrying signs marched around the hall where the Secretary of State, Miss LaMarche, was to speak. Their signs said they were in favor of the reinstatement of the co-hosts on the Seven Days program. And during her speech... In Vancouver, six clergymen have formed a committee to coordinate protests from the West Coast. It was formed at the University of British Columbia by the Reverend James McKibben, an Anglican, who says the committee will try to link up with a national... As the controversy continued between the CBC and its television producers over the program This Hour Has Seven Days, a 15-foot effigy of Alphonse Wimet, president of the corporation, was burned yesterday outside CBC offices in Vancouver. George Finstad interviewed the man responsible, W.G. Royal. We feel that freedom of speech uh, being suppressed by CBC. What do you... Uh hope to accomplish by this kind of a demonstration? Uh, we hope to get back uh, Mr. Watson, Mr. LaPierre. Popular support for seven days was also translating into political support. The politicians hadn't always liked the program, but now it was a cause célèbre. The CBC had mismanaged it, and there was political hay to be made. The seven days row blew up in the House of Commons this afternoon with opposition leader John Diefenbaker demanding as soon as the session started that the House set aside ordinary business and debate what he called the crisis of uncertainty and chaos in the affairs of the CBC. He mentioned the statement from the Secretary of State, Judy LaMarche, that the seven days row is an iceberg symptomatic of more fundamental problems within the corporation, noted that the CBC had received 3,800 telegrams and said that he himself had received more telegrams on the subject than on any other since the flag debate. Outside the House, Mr. Diefenbaker had this... When it is raised in Parliament, Mr. Pearson and Judy LaMarche decided that they've got to keep it out. So how do we do it? Oh, we've got a broadcasting committee. And who's the head of the broadcasting committee? Gérard Pelletier. Who's Gérard Pelletier? He's a public affairs man, our top personality in public affairs in Montreal on the French network. And the problem is the non-renewal of contracts for two hosts in public affairs. You would have thought that when a parliamentary committee decide that something is happening in a crown corporation, the first thing they would do would be Let's call the president. No. I came in at the 14th session. 
after they had monopolized the headlines for two full weeks. Around the time the Parliamentary Committee started its hearings in Ottawa, CBC producers in Toronto were beginning a series of marathon meetings to determine their position. Unlike the Montreal producers, who had won the right to form a union in 1959, the Toronto producers had only the loosest of associations, and many of them shared Ottawa's reservations about seven days. So there was a lot of resistance to the idea of simply throwing their weight behind the Save Seven Days campaign. But management had put itself in an untenable position by firing the Seven Days hosts. That was a casting decision and properly belonged to the producer. And on this issue, the producers reluctantly decided they had to fight. After an eight-hour meeting at the Westbury Hotel, Producer Association President Tom Kosh read an ultimatum addressed to CBC President Alphonse Wimet. The President has offered no cogent reasons to us or the public for repudiating the Department of Public Affairs in the case of the hosts of seven days. This association considers the President's action a contravention of the 1965 undertaking with respect to prior consultations with producers about program matters. There can be no peace... Kosh went on to threaten a withdrawal of services if a satisfactory solution could not be reached. Eventually, a May 1st deadline was added to this strike threat. Meanwhile, seven days stayed on the air in the midst of immense public excitement. The reason why the public was so interested in that was that they could see that, that every Sunday they watched seven days and wondered whether it might explode on the air, you see. It was theater. It was happening backstage, but it might have another aspect to it. We might be able to see something happen on camera. That was very exciting. See, it was a marvelous kind of civil war because it was a showbiz civil war. It involved something that was highly visible. You could see it. It didn't cost you a thing. All you had to do is turn on the television every Sunday night. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to edition number 50 of Seven Days. This is our final show of the year. And would you believe it, ladies and gentlemen, that Patrick and I have not as yet made up our minds about whether or not to come back next year. <laughs> Tonight, Seven Days finished its second season only because of the intervention of the Prime Minister. The producers had threatened a walkout on May 1st unless the corporation was at least prepared to reopen the question of the Seven Days hosts. Wimet was adamant that the firings were final. So Lester Pearson himself intervened, and the May 1st edition of Seven Days went on the air with this announcement from Warren Davis. Ladies and gentlemen, due to the good offices of the Prime Minister of Canada, this, this hour, hour has seven, seven days. days. The Prime Minister decided it was a bad idea not to have seven days on the air when it should be. Besides, he had got a Nobel Prize for diplomacy if he couldn't solve that little thing. And he did it by outwitting both sides. He decided he will appoint a mediator. And he had to get the consent on both sides, which he got for Stuart Keat, publisher of the Vancouver Sun. He got it by keeping the terms of reference for the mediator 
totally obscure. In fact, they were never really properly articulated. The prime minister told the producers, of, of, or let it be known through the producers' representatives, that he had full powers to negotiate. And he told the CBC management the same thing. But the fact is that Alphonse had never any intention of reinstating the two hosts. And uh, in the end, Pearson won hands down, because all he ca cared about is that the program should remain on the air. And um, Keith failed entirely in getting that question of the two co-hosts, which was the only important question, reopened. He wrote a splendid report, but that question was never dealt with, couldn't be dealt with, because Alphonse wouldn't budge. And there the story really ended. We met, stood firm. Despite the success of the Save Seven Days campaign and despite an unfavorable report from the Parliamentary Committee, Doug Leiterman was asked to sign a pledge that he would abide by CBC policies, procedures, and direction. He equivocated and was fired. Reeves Hagen and Patrick Watson resigned. The war was over. Seven Days lived on only as a legend. This hour has seven days, or has had up till now. We've had our ups and downs this year, but we loved it anyhow. It's been a pleasure knowing you, so as we take our bow from seven days. Why? So long. Ciao. Tonight on Ideas, Turning Points in Public Broadcasting. The fourth of five programs written and presented by David Cayley. Technical Operations, Lorne Tulk. Production Assistance, Gail Brownell. Producer, Bernie Lucht. Archives Research, Ken Pewley. I'm Lister Sindler. Good night.